Before I start, I need to let you know that next Sunday, we're going to have a, like an actual business meeting. Um, and what's gonna make it a business meeting is in part, whoever's here, like you get to be a, um, like a founding member, right? And at that point, we're, we're just gonna look at each other and agree, we're, you've been baptized and we're members, right? And we've adopted the Constitution, so that's done. You're going to agree to our statement of faith, uh, which is nothing outlandish. Um, and we need to do that so that we can review and approve a provisional budget. Um, we don't know what kind of money we're going to have yet, right? So we're just like, we're going to throw together a budget and see what actually happens and trust the Lord with the results. Um, but you, you, you need to approve it, and then we can stick to it. Um, secondly, we're going to confirm our treasurer, who's Rick Perry, and our trustees, whom the eldership team have nominated, uh, Tim Tyler, and raise your hand, please, and Gail Matheson. <laughs> yeah, all the Tims. Uh, <clears throat> Senior, yes, the senior of the Tim Tylers. And then Gail Matheson in the back. Uh, as it says in our Constitution, the office of trustee is not necessarily a biblically mandated office, but it is biblical to have them as signatories for the church and those who will interact with civil government on our behalf and handle things like the signing of documents. One of the things that I'm intensely interested in avoiding as chairman of the board here is also having signatory power uh, for the church. I think part of what will enable us to be congregational is that those, those responsibilities are divided up and dispersed a little bit, um, congregational slash elder-led. All right, so that's on the agenda for next Sunday. Right now, the plan is to do that immediately following um, service, right? Yeah, okay, Matt said yes. Um, and then... The other thing I want to let you know is 5 o'clock this afternoon, FBC Bellevue has asked us to come and um, defend ourselves. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> they would like an update. They're having their quarterly business meeting um, and, and just wanted us, to, me, I guess, to come and um, let them know what's going on here. And they are our sending church. And then Mike told me, Pastor, sorry, Pastor Lusk told me, there's not usually very many people there. So I said, well, I'll invite my whole crew and we'll fill things out a little bit. So you're welcome to come. You don't have to, but it would be an opportunity to meet our, probably the core members of our sending church there. Cause those are the people that usually show up to business meetings, right? That's it. Those are all the announcements. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as we move into your word that you would uh, make clear to us in mind and in heart what it is that you want us to know and understand. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide me as I speak, help me to rightly divide this word, and be with all of us as we listen and help us to yield in obedience to what you are saying. Um, we entrust these next few minutes to you, and we, we look confidently I'm expecting that you're going to work through your word in our hearts in such a way that you draw sinners out of the depths into the light 
and sanctify those of us who already know Jesus Christ with this word. We pray for this in his beautiful name. Amen. Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4. Man. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a born of woman, rather, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Last week, we, we looked at the first part of chapter 4, primarily in terms of the heart of God, I think. And, and I, the reason is I wanted to emphasize the point that justification by faith, which is, I think, most Protestant teachers and preachers would say is the paramount doctrine of the gospel. Let's all get up. <laughs> What'd you say? Yeah, you were. Oh, you're going the long way around. Sorry. Justification by faith. Get some tissues up here in the front row, please. Which most teachers and preachers would say is the paramount doctrine of the New Testament gospel is not the final T-I-O-N word in the gospel or in the redemptive process. And I think it's worth noting that if you wanted to call Galatians Paul's doctrinal dissertation on the subject of justification by faith, you wouldn't be wrong. You could also go to Romans 5 through 8. You wouldn't be wrong. If you wanted to say that this is his dissertation on the subject then I would point out he flows naturally from that subject of justification into this one of adoption because the doctrine of adoption must follow that of justification, and there's a very important reason why. My contention last week is that God, as judge, bangs the gavel and declares that by faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. That's justification. You are innocent of sin, and your guilt has been dealt with. The problem is, while that deals with your guilt, I don't think it really deals very well with your shame and your fear. To be declared righteous because your guilt, all of the guilt of your sin has been imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you, is breathtaking. And I'm not trying to diminish that or make it sound like it's not that important. The exchange that deals with the obedience deficit that we have before God is most precious. And it does tend shame and fear, but not perfectly. Consider the fall. Let's go back to the garden. So get in your mind's eye, Adam and Eve, the fruit is off the tree, it's been eaten, and now things are beginning to change quickly. Immediately after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, I don't think that they are overly preoccupied with covering their guilt. 
That's not what I see happening. Guilt drives us to cover the evidence of our transgressions. But it's not like you see Adam and Eve trying to hang the fruit back on the tree. What I do see them doing is hiding themselves and covering themselves. All of their inventiveness is dedicated to sewing together fig leaves and covering their bodies. Now, what what we understand fundamentally in terms of the gospel is this. God created, and it was, right? And then God commanded, and it was, no, no, for our, yeah, okay, you were right, for our good. When he created us in his image, he commanded us consistent with his character. There's no division between creation and the character that was given to us as his creation. Part of us carrying his image is that we carried his likeness in heart and in mind before this sin happened. So the commandment is given for our good because as human beings, the way we were made, our deepest satisfaction was always going to be found in obeying what God gave us to do. That's by design. It stands to reason then that while sin promises satisfaction and elevation, what sin actually delivers is dissatisfaction and the diminishment of the man or the woman. This is the reason that Adam and Eve want to cover themselves, because sin mars the image. It messes up what was made. Instead of joyfully carrying the image of God, Adam and Eve had corrupted the picture, and as a result, their view of themselves immediately changed. They knew they were naked, and they were ashamed. And that shame is the catalyst behind their new garments. Cover the image. It's no longer good. They knew it instinctively, yet it wasn't enough because when God comes walking in the garden, what do they do? They hide. The fig leaves sewn together were insufficient all of a sudden, and fear grips their hearts because God has entered the picture. They don't hide the chewed on fruit they hide themselves because while guilt was the driving force it seems to me that fear and shame are the controlling ones in human relationships when fear and shame are the controlling emotions usually codependency is is present so like sociologists and psychologists who are agnostic and atheistic would agree that codependency is not a, a, a situation where human flourishing occurs. You've got one party manipulating the other. We know this is not healthy. We know that it's destructive. And if human flourishing doesn't occur in those kinds of relationships, it's because all of your energy is spent either manipulating another person or trying to appease a person by whom you're being manipulated. That's the way that relationship works. Because sin has marred the image and we possess fear and shame. Even if we wanted to be in right relationship with God, we cannot be. And this is mirrored in those dysfunctional human relationships. Fear and shame enters the picture. 
If I'm the manipulator, I'm fearful that you're going to figure out my ruse and get the better of me. If you're the manipulated, you are fearful simply of me and are trying to appease me in hopes that we can have some kind of functionality in our dysfunctional relationship. The best you can hope for in a codependent relationship is that of a relationship between a slave and a master. In the similar way, the best we can hope for as fallen human beings in a relationship with our Creator God, apart from adoption, is a relationship of slave and master. God's justification absolutely deals with our guilt. And praise God for that because we have immeasurable guilt. When the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, would mark iniquity, who could stand? Part of what he's communicating is that we, we, we know in our heart of hearts that we can't possibly lay out all of our sins in a line and comprehend them. They're too many. And we also know that God is most certainly capable of doing precisely that. Thank God for justification because our immeasurable guilt needs to be dealt with. Justification must take place or we are bound for hell. Every soul in this room, if you tried to gain entrance to God's house based on your conduct, if you even tried to talk to God, without justification, all that you would see is an angry face of judgment because we are not holy. You are not wonderful. You are not lovable. You are not precious. You're not even a little bit cute. You are wicked, arrogant, insolent, boastful, proud, abusive, manipulative, self-righteous, self-exalting. That's what we are left to ourselves. And apart from justification, your relationship to God would begin the moment you die and it would end swiftly thereafter when judgment was over with. And you would be cast with the unregenerate into hell. Jesus does not enhance your goodness, your acceptableness, or your merits. You have no goodness. You are unacceptable and you merit only hell. The gospel is good news, not that God adores you because you're so adorable. The gospel is good news of God's willingness to cover your unrighteousness with the righteousness of his own son. Jesus offers to exchange your merits for his own. That is why all those who genuinely believe in the person, Jesus, are declared righteous. What he endured on the cross was the judgment that I deserve. Amen? We understand that. Because he endured it, if, if you believe your sins and the guilt you own are taken away from you, God declares that you are righteous based on that faith in his beloved son. So justification, therefore, deals with your guilt. Your guilt goes to Jesus, his obedience goes to you, but my contention is the image is yet marred. 
Fear and shame still push us into hiding. Look at 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, right at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. First John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we will be just like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in himself in him rather purifies himself as he is pure so the child of god knows that we still have remaining sin like i'm not what i'm eventually going to be but i'm not what i was either So I'm on this trajectory that's taking me into more perfectly portraying the Son of God through a process, however long I'm alive, called sanctification. And we know in our heart of hearts, we don't look like Jesus yet because we're not perfect, right? We know in our heart of hearts that we don't look like Jesus yet because we're not perfect, right? All right, five of you at least know that. We also know that the progress towards perfection, you better say amen, is agonizingly slow. Okay. If you've been justified by faith, there is still an honest assessment constantly going on, and it works like this. I don't measure up yet, so I have this constant temptation to hide again. Adoption deals with this fear and shame. So last week I said the judge takes you home. And we ended with this consideration that the father desires to be in relationship with his creatures. In order to be in relationship with his creatures, what he has done is he has made us, through Christ, he has made us sons and daughters. Not just forgiven creatures, but his relatives, spiritually speaking. To understand this better and see how we can know this, Paul goes on, which is is why we're going to pick it up in verse 6. Because you are sons, God, sorry, we're back in Galatians 4. (laughs) Apologies. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I want to answer the question, how can we know that we are his? How can we know that we are sons and daughters? Uh, Before I knew that I had an inguinal hernia, I only suspected it due to some pretty frustrating pain. And I spent a couple of months in denial. Like most men, I tend to think that Physical maladies are best dealt with by ignoring them, (laughs) walking them off, or, yeah, rubbing some dirt on it. (laughs) Uh, But when you can't lift a heavy object without it feeling like your insides are going to become your outsides, you can only ignore it for so long, and things start getting left undone. 
When we moved into our house in June of 2017, after we'd been there for a couple of days, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things that disappointed me the most was that in spite of the fact we finally had a shower door instead of a shower curtain, <laughs> which I thought was high society. Right? <laughs> The door was coated in so much calcium that it was hard to bathe without being reminded of a shipwreck or a coral reef. They just didn't take very good care of it. And my attempts over the years to clean the shower door resulted in only a slight improvement. So in the fall of 2020, while Lisa was off substitute teaching in the COVID crisis uh, of the elementary and junior high schools, I had the brilliant idea to remove the shower door so that I could coat it in acid without getting it all over the floor and get rid of all of the calcium that had built up and then maybe finally remove the barnacles. As these things go, <clears throat> so often for the homeowner, removing the door resulted in the discovery that it was probably only the calcium deposits which were <laughs> holding it together to begin with. The hinge pin and mount disintegrated under my scrubbing and there was actually no metal left on the bottom part of the frame. In fact, I don't know how water wasn't running under the frame of the shower and into the living room below, but it wasn't, praise God. We needed a new door. <laughs> Off to Menards I went and the, un you know, the unplanned expenditure aside, shower doors are not light. And as Audrey and I struggled to haul the door up the stairs to the master bedroom, because Lisa and the kids, Kate and Sam, were at school, I was struck with the illustrative nature of my situation. Normally, I could have managed hauling a shower door up the stairs on my own. But there was something inside of me which was broken. And I needed a helper. Poor Audrey. <laughs> had no idea how desperate the situation was. I'm not sure what would have happened if she had lost her grip. I don't know that I could have caught it. So I put her at the top and myself at the bottom. In the same way as justified people, we need a helper. I'll leave you all wondering how that story turned out, because it's not the point. We need a helper because no matter how justified we are, the temptation to sin remains. And we know it. It's the experience of our day-to-day -day life. The remnants and remains of sin drive us again and again into hiding. How many of you have experienced this when you get done caving like a toothpick to temptation. You feel like you need to give God time to cool off before you pray and ask for forgiveness. That's the hiding that I'm talking about. As though he were not intimately acquainted with what you had done already. We tend to avoid God after we've sinned, and the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father seems to be in constant jeopardy as a result. Look at John chapter 14. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, how can we know that we are his? 
In John 14, <clears throat> verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The relationship that a child of God has with God demands obedience. So look, look at this again. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Without putting aside all that I've said about us not being justified by keeping the law. Without putting aside all that I have said about us not being justified by keeping the law. And without putting aside all that I've said about us not being sanctified by keeping the law. There is in every true child of God a real and insatiable desire to be obedient to what he has commanded. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. Jesus knew that even as justified and loved sons and daughters, we would struggle with remaining sin. He knew that we would tend to be filled with doubt and fear. He knew that we would tend to be plagued with temptation and the corresponding shame. So he promised a helper. What we cannot do on our own because of what is yet broken inside of us, he sends his spirit to do with us. And what a magnificent helper indeed is the Holy Spirit compared to Audrey. It's not like the Holy Spirit is just there in case the worst happens to observe and record it. He's there to help. Willingly, the Spirit of God wants to help you. So Paul says it this way, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Mark 14, in the other garden, <coughs> verse 32, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In this, I mean, unspeakably, profoundly dark moment in Jesus' earthly life. He cries out to his father in heaven and he uses this Aramaic word Abba. It's not a word we use. It wasn't really even a word that they used, but he used it because it carries with it a special connotation of relationship. When we were young, 
there were many times when we just needed daddy. Something isn't, isn't working right and you don't know how to fix it. You make a mess. You don't know how to clean up on your own. You get into a situation you cannot find your way out of. We get scared. We tend to fear. Dads are supposed to step in in these situations. So the idea is if you're a dad, when your kid calls, you come a run it. Expecting the worst and being pleasantly surprised when it's not that bad and you can manage it. Jesus' use of this word in the garden is such a profound moment of obedience when compared with Adam and Eve's moment in their garden when they should have cried out. Abba, Father. When the tempter was there trying to take away from them life and vitality. Well, here's Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane standing in for that first Adam and doing it right. And yet what does he need? The spirit of God to comfort him. So he cries out, daddy. And what Paul has just said is that for the believer justified by faith in Christ, God gives the same spirit by which Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, that we might cry out, Daddy. I'm not trying to be irreverent. Don't take it too far. I'm not saying that, you know, we approach the, the, the love seat that God is on and just get whatever we want as though he were Santa Claus. What I'm saying is your father sits on a throne of grace and longs for you to cry out to him. Because he's adopted you as his child. Why shouldn't we cry out to God when under the temptation to sin? Why shouldn't we ask him for help? Why shouldn't we seek him? The amazing part is this word that Jesus used was natural for Jesus because he was the son of God. It makes sense for Jesus to call the creator of the universe father because it was his father. Now, Paul says, the spirit puts the same word on the lips of the sons and daughters who have been justified by faith that we might call out father and he answer because the relationship exists. We have the same spirit indwelling us. Jesus in John 14 promised a helper. He even insinuated that not sending the helper would be like leaving us as orphans. Do you see how this theme is woven through the tapestry of Scripture? It's everywhere you look. And Paul wants us to see that the helper is actually the spirit of Jesus Christ. So I've contended since the beginning of Galatians that the path of life in Christ has a chasm on either side, legalism on one, licentiousness on the other. And down the middle is relationship with God. Relationship with God is not just us studying his character in scripture or in Calvin's institutes or whatever. Relationship with God is not just us crying out into the dark, black, endless universe, hoping that something there hears us. Relationship with God is as real as your relationship with the people around you. In fact, it is more real than the relationship you have with the people around you because you cannot hide 
from God. The same Spirit which cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane dwells within every believer. The same Spirit. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is more intimate than we can comprehend. Whatever you do, wherever you go, that Spirit is with you. Now, the convicting, challenging element to that statement, wherever you go, whatever you do, the Spirit of God is present with you. Is where have you taken the Spirit of God? And now don't you want to hide in shame? But as sons and daughters, his invitation to us is don't hide, come. And he gives us a special and beautiful way to come. Jesus said, I want you to do this. And as often as you do it, in remembrance of me, be mindful that it was my body that was broken and my blood that was shed in order to redeem you from that sin of which you are guilty. That all of your guilt and shame might be taken from you and nailed to the cross so that you bear it no more. So every month we set out this bread and this juice and we take it and we eat it and we take it and we drink it in remembrance of the fact that Jesus' broken body hung on that cross so that we could be redeemed from sin. And now he stands victorious over our sin, over death and over the grave. So we don't eat and drink in memorial. We eat and drink to remind ourselves that we too someday will have victory over sin because he's called us to be sons and daughters. How can you know? Because he is your father and not just a fearful judge. That's how you can know. So the way we do it here at Springfield is, um, I'll turn on some music just for some background noise and I'll try to keep it at a reasonable volume. We want you to go as a family unit. There's a table here, there's a table over there, there's a table back there. Go as a family unit. If you have been saved and you have something to remember, then take, pray together, eat and drink, and do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. If there's not somebody here for you to go with, I'll notice or somebody nearby you will notice and take you with them. You don't have to go by yourself. Um, once I think everybody that wants to go has gone, then Tim Sr. and Garrett will come up and lead us in a closing song, and then we'll, we'll pray and be done.